All right, as the ushers come around this morning, uh, I have a profound question, a scriptural question. Uh, and it's one that I'm going to ask you to wrestle with. I want you to enter the, because the, we're going to do it musically. Uh, I'm going to ask you to enter the song, wrestle with what it's asking. Um, and here's the, here's the premise. Uh, here's, the, here's the question. And then the song will keep asking you, what's your one thing? Hit it, guys. Restless tonight Cause I wasted the light Between both these times I drew a really thin line It's nothing I planned And not that I can But you should be mine Across that line If I traded it all If I gave it all the way for one thing And just for one thing If I sorted it out If I knew all about this one thing Wouldn't that be something I promise I might Not walk on by Maybe next time but not this time Even though I know I don't wanna know Yeah, I guess I know I just hate how it sounds If I traded it all If I gave it all away for one thing Just for one thing if I sorted it out If I knew all about this one thing Wouldn't that be something? If I traded it all If I gave it all away for one thing Just for one thing If I sorted it if I knew all about this one thing Wouldn't that be something? Even though I know I don't wanna know Yeah, I guess I know I just hate how it sounds Even though I know I don't wanna know I guess I know I just hate how it sounds If I traded it all If I gave it all away for one thing Just for one thing If I sorted it out If I knew all about this one thing My first one thing, at least the one that I remember, was mom and dad and the way they, they looked at me, the way their faces lit up, the uncontrollable smile as it worked its way across their lips. 
Honestly, it probably began with, uh, with first words and then first steps. And, and even kind of toddler John was able to figure out that there was nothing I liked more than seeing their pride. Man, I would do anything when I was a kid to make them proud. The truth is, even now, there's, there's a lot of things that I would do to make them proud. But soon enough, somewhere in the teen years, not sure when, that wasn't enough anymore. It no longer was the one thing. I mean, maybe it was the fact that so few others seemed to care about my collection of participation trophies. Um, maybe it was the sudden realization that my one brother was a better athlete than me. My other brother seemed like he was more popular than me. And so I moved on. Uh, I traded that one thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I sorted it out. I found all about a new thing. And in my eighth grade mind, she was beautiful. <laughs> oh, I loved her. My heart raced. My knees got weak. I can still remember that macrame sweater. I would race, get my milk, race to the seat next to her in the lunchroom. Oh man, I studied her. I figured out what she liked so I could like it too. Never watched a hockey game in my life as a kid. She liked hockey. Up went the Ranger poster in my room. Anything, everything for this, just this one thing. And then right before junior prom, she met another guy. So in 1989, I, I, I was getting ready to graduate college, and it was time to get a real job. It was time to prove myself. I, it was time to show everybody how smart and successful I really was. I mean, look, things hadn't looked that good up until 1989, but I was about to make a turn. I, I was sure mom and dad were right. I really was the smartest and the best. I really could do anything. And for a while, it looked pretty good. I mean, I, I landed somehow fortuitous three, fortuitously through the moving of the hand of God. Somehow I grabbed one of only 20 or so spots in the top bank management training program in the state of New Jersey. I was going to be hot stuff. I was going to finish at the top of that class. I was going to get the corner office. It was only going to be a short amount of time until the boys up on the 18th floor knew who John Osmond was. <laughs> See, I had a new one thing. I had swapped it out. I, I, I was going to be the man. I remember the first day in class, I had my, my new suit on. I showed up there, and I, I met a guy, a, a friend. We, we, we had the same sense of humor. In fact, we're still friends. His name was John, and, and John was excited to be there, too. It turns out, though, that John had the same one-thing plan I had. And John also had a master's degree from William & Mary. And then there was Kim to my right, and, and, and Kim had, had a master's degree from Lehigh, and Susan to my left, and she went to Lafayette. And they all had the same one things, too. And it turned out mom and dad weren't right. I wasn't the smartest kid in the world. I wasn't the smartest kid in the class. So it occurred to me, I guess title and position aren't everything. <laughs> and, and, and God again moved in my life in, in, in a crazy way. I mean, it's literally a crazy way I can tell you about it another time. And I wound up swapping out a banking career for ownership in a private equity venture capital firm. I was in over my head. 
But big bonuses, a bigger house, nicer cars, that was where it was going to be at anyway. Heck, a title or a position wasn't going to get me to get a good night's sleep. Turns out what I wanted, what I needed, was a nicer bank account or, or some investments. That, that would really give me some certainty, some, some surety. I, I, it would make me feel better about myself. It would keep me from worrying. But then some economic naysayers came along, started questioning the current valuation models on tech startups and profitless companies. And within a short period of time, the NASDAQ fell 80%. And the dreams of the, the mansion kind of poofed away. So let me ask you a question. What's your one thing? What's your one thing? What do you seek and want more than anything else? What do you worry about at night? What do you run to to give you comfort? This morning, we're going to talk not just about fear. We've been talking about why we're so afraid. But we're going to talk in a specific way about fear and something inside the realm of fear that is actually much more toxic than just fear itself. I want to talk to you about anxiety and worry. And this is not just me coming up with some kind of a psycho babble talk for you. Jesus and the writers of the scripture talk about anxiety and worry a lot. Now, I want to be very, very clear about this. I'm not in engaging in a general talk on how, the, how we should manage stress better so that our lives can be more pleasant. That's not what this is about. This today is, is about anxiety at a level that many of us have not experienced, but many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We're talking about paralyzing worry, mind-racing anxiety. If this resonates with you after the talk, maybe during the week, I would love to hear from you about it. But the statistics are becoming very, very clear. This kind of crippling worry is an illness which is literally exploding in our culture. When I put in anxiety into my Google search bar this week, the first word that came up after it was exploding. It's now being named by most mental health professionals as an epidemic. And the research is clear when it comes to anxiety. A certain percentage of our population is just going to be genetically predisposed to be much more anxious. You could draw you know, your traditional bell-shaped curve and look at anxiety that way. There's going to be certain people on the far right of the curve who never get anxious. They're predisposed to be risk-takers. Their brains, their nervous systems, they're not sensitive to adrenaline or to other stress modulators. They have what's called GABA, gamma amniobutric acid in their systems. It takes a large amount of risk just to, to get those folks up from feeling bored. Anybody know people like that? I would love to be like that. Folks in the middle, I'm kind of in the middle. Folks in the middle of the bell curve are set up for normal experiences of anxiety. But then there's folks at the other end of the bell curve that are genetically predisposed to be sensitive to anxiety. Their brains are extremely sensitive to the effects of adrenaline. This group is, is much more likely to feel more anxiety than you can imagine if they have to go to a party where they might have to make small talk. Their level of anxiety in going to that party and small talk is equivalent to the risk taker jumping out of an airplane. At some level, there's a physiological nature to this. And now, here's what I want you to understand, no matter where you are on that bell curve, just because you're on the right side of it, it does not mean that you are more spiritually mature or you have more faith than somebody on the far left. 
They don't just need to believe more. And just because you're on the far left doesn't mean you're spiritually inferior to somebody that you don't have real faith like somebody who's on the right. Now, in a room this size, and there's a lot of you in here this morning, right now, there are people in this room that are wrestling with crippling levels of anxiety. For some of you, simply coming to a service like this required a level of courage that the rest of us, if we understood that, would marvel at. And one more comment on this before, before we talk about the spiritual side of it. If you wrestle with crippling levels of anxiety, I would really encourage you. Anxiety is deadly. Anxiety is deadly. If you are really wrestling at deep levels with anxiety, please go and talk to somebody about this. Uh, it, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Think about getting with a therapist and working through some of this. Um, maybe properly monitored medication might be an important part of the healing process for you. I don't want to run by that. Now, here's what I want you to understand. There's a very important distinction between what, what may be called alarm versus anxiety. Alarm is the strong kind of initial feeling of unpleasantness or concern designed to alert you that something's wrong. It, it, an alarm is designed to make you spring into action. One writer put it this way. He said, uh, he said alarm is like an alarm clock. That's what we call this kind of clock. It's supposed to wake you up when you're sleeping. An alarm goes off. Let's see if we, you can get a feeling here. An alarm goes off. It's an alarm clock. The day has begun. Now, it's not an optimistic name for a way to start the day. It'd be nice if they called it, this could be the best day ever, clock. And you just jump out because you don't want to miss a second. But it's an alarm clock. And the alarm has a purpose. When the buzzer goes off, it's supposed to wake you up. Once you're awake, what's the first thing you do? You turn off the alarm because it served its purpose. It was supposed to be the first thing you do. But now imagine if the buzzer went off and you woke up, but you never turned it off. And it just kept going all day long. You took a shower, the sound kept going. You had breakfast, the sound kept going. You got in the car and you were driving all day. The sound just kept going. While you were at work, it just kept going. You went home, you had dinner with your family, the sound, it just kept going. It kept, it kept causing this anxiety. and you, you wanted to have a romantic evening with, with your spouse and sit down and have an intimate conversation, but the sound wouldn't stop. You went to church, you listened to a message, but the sound kept rolling through your head. That's what it feels like to have anxiety. In fact, anxiety itself is even more painful. And what's sad about anxiety is as it's exploded in our culture, We've begun to get used to it. We start to think it's normal to live this way. We live in a world where, where people think this is, this is okay. When the biblical writers keep saying, be anxious for nothing, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, don't worry about your life, what were they talking about? What, what is it that we're not supposed to do? The hallmark of anxious thoughts or anxiety that the Holy Spirit wants to free you from, the hallmark of that kind of anxiety is not just thoughts that are unpleasant or alarming or feelings that are difficult because they may be an alert to real danger. They, they may be there to say, wake up and take action. 
That kind of anxiety that the Bible says is negative, the kind of anxiety the Bible says is negative and is not God's call, is toxic anxiety, where the thoughts become negative and self-defeating and persistent. They keep repeating themselves. They keep recycling over and over the same ground. And instead of prompting you to take action, they become a spiral that actually paralyzes you and traps you in inaction. There's a technical term for it. It's called rumination. It's a chain of negative thoughts that just don't stop. And so the Lord has been good to open my eyes to this over the last bunch of months about how many folks that I love and care about are struggling with a very real, <laughs> a very real and deep level of anxiety. And as I've, I've talked with them and, and they've told me what it's done to their lives, they, they've shared that what most of us try to do is say, oh, you know, don't worry so much. Trust in the Lord. Oh, well, you know, maybe if you just, uh, you, you put yourself in a different situation, to which I've had friends that would say, you don't understand, I, I'm coming out of my skin sitting here in silence. And so as I was looking to try to understand this, as I walked with, with some friends, um, I, I found a young writer, a young blogger, who's struggling with anxiety, and she wrote this piece on it, and it opened my eyes. It was almost as if everything some of my friends had said that they were struggling with, this person was struggling with it too. And so I just want to read it to you because it's either going to be your story or it's going to be the story of someone you know. Can I, can I, can I do that? She wrote, anxiety is the restless nights of sleep as you toss and turn. It's your brain never being able to shut off. It's the thoughts that you overthink before bedtime and all of your worst fears become a reality and dreams and nightmares. It's waking up tired even though your day just started. Anxiety is learning how to function with sleep deprivation because it took you to 2 o'clock in the morning just to shut your eyes. It's every text that you text, you, you wonder, how do I word this properly? It's a double or triple text in case you messed up. Anxiety is answering texts embarrassingly fast. Anxiety is the time you spend waiting for an answer as a scenario plays out in your mind of what they could be thinking or are they mad. Anxiety is unanswered texts that it kills you inside even though you try to tell yourself maybe they're just busy. Anxiety is the critical voice in your head that says, well, maybe they're deliberately ignoring you. It's believing every negative scenario you can come up with. It's believing every negative scenario you can come up with. Anxiety is waiting. It always feels like you're waiting. Anxiety is apologizing for things that don't even re require the words, I'm sorry. It's, it's self-doubt. It's a lack of confidence both in you and those around you. Anxiety is being hyper-aware of everyone and everything, so much so you can tell if there's a shift in someone merely by, by the tone of their voice. Anxiety is ruining relationships before they even begin. It tells you you're wrong. They don't like you, they're gonna leave you. And then you jump to conclusions and you ruin the relationship anyway. Anxiety is this constant state of worrying and panic, all about being on the edge. It's, it's irrational fears, it, it's sweaty palms, it, it's a racing heart. On the outside, no one can see it. You appear calm and at ease, smiling, but underneath it's anything but that. Because anxiety is the art of deception for people who don't know you and, and for those people who do know you, it, it's a constant stream of phrases like, well, don't worry, or don't overthink this, or, or just relax. Anxiety is the uneasiness at a party because you think all the eyes are on you and nobody wants you there. Anxiety, it's that extra shot that you take and it seems like you're finally relaxing until you wake up the next day hungover and 
full of regret and wondering what you said to who and who you owe an apology to. Anxiety is overcompensating. It's trying too hard to please people. It's being, being everywhere on time because the thought of being late, well, that would put you over the edge. And it's, it's the fear of failure. It, it, it's striving for perfection and then beating yourself up when you fall short. It's always needing a schedule or a plan. It, it's the voice that's inside of your head that's going, you're going to fail. Anxiety is trying to exceed everybody's expectations, even if you're killing yourself to do so. It's taking on more than you could possibly do just to get your brain to stop overthinking. It's procrastination because you're paralyzed with fear of failing, so you, so you hold things off. It's breaking down in private and crying when you're overwhelmed because no one can ever see this side of you. Anxiety is picking up and trying again because the only thing worse than, than overcoming other people is overcoming you and your own demons and it's beating that critical voice that says, you're so screwed up, you should feel awful right now. It's the want, it's the need to control things because it feels like this thing in your life, it's outside of your control, and you have to learn to live with it. Some of you know what that feels like. You feel it right now. All of you know somebody that is struggling with this at deep levels in your life. St. Francis de Sales, he had this great quote on anxiety, he said, anxiety is the greatest evil that can befall the soul, sin only accepted. Because when our heart is troubled and disturbed within itself, it loses the strength, this is so good, it loses the strength necessary to maintain the virtues that it had acquired, and at the same time, it loses the means to resist the temptation of the enemy, who then uses his utmost efforts to fish, as they say, in troubled waters. God never called any of his children to live like this. God himself never lives in anxiety, and you were created in his image. Where in the Bible does it ever say, and then the Lord was anxious? He never experiences anxiety, and God never called you to live like that. Now, don't get confused, because the Holy Spirit does move in people's lives, it moves them towards concern and conviction and repentance, sometimes to sorrow, sometimes to painful moments. But when the Holy Spirit is doing this in your life, it always, always, always leads. It's designed to motivate us to move forward in action towards the right path, to be empowered to, talk, to walk towards the kingdom of God. It always does. Anxiety never does. Anxiety moves us away from life, Anxiety moves you away from God, away from the kingdom, and always leads to death. And this is why Jesus talks about it over and over and over again. It makes me, me more self-preoccupied, less attentive to what other people need. It makes temptations look attractive. I mean, I could deal with this, or I could have another drink. Because I... I'll do anything sometimes just to conquer the inner pain, you know? It erodes our ability to, to feel grateful. It increases our irritability with people we love. It, it destroys our appetite to change. And this is why Paul, when he was writing to the church, and Tim quoted it before, he said, church, don't, whatever you do, listen now, whatever you do, don't be anxious about anything. So what I want to do is show you a biblical way of getting at the root of anxiety. 
and, and why this is so important to you. It was so important to Jesus that this is his number one command, by far over any other command. Now, if we're serious about this, the first thing you're going to need is to, to acknowledge is that you have a problem. Because if you never have a problem, you're never going to have the opportunity to learn how, to, how not to worry about it and how to grow. So here's the question, interactive portion of the sermon now. How many of you, and, and you can respond by raising your hand, how many of you have at least one problem or know where you can get one? Raise your hand if that's true. <laughs> All right. Next question, interactive again. How many of you are sitting next to someone who looks like they've got a problem? Amen. And whoever's sitting next to the person that just said amen, how many of you are actually sitting next to your problem? And so, see, the good news is you all qualify to move forward in this morning's discussion. King David, um, he wrote most of the Psalms. It's kind of like a personal journal. It's a, it's, it's a personal walk with God. And King David speaks of anxiety and fear and how to overcome these things in his life. And he lays out what I think is an underlying issue for all of us and the solution. Here's what he said in Psalm 27. He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be? And when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army beseech me, my heart will not. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. This is a story about fear. This is a story about worry. This is a journal entry about anxiety. But check out what David is doing here. He's doing what all of us with anxiety and worry issues do. He is assuming the worst. Anybody assume the worst? When I, when I counsel people who are struggling, when I counsel myself, I say, stay in today, stay in today. Because when David wrote this, there, there, at that moment, there was no wicked advancing against him to devour him. There was no army that was currently besieging him, and there was not a war breaking out against him. He was doing what warriors do. He was looking ahead and assuming all of the worst. Remember Jesus... When he walked along, he said, uh, you know, you really shouldn't worry about tomorrow. Each day is going to have enough troubles of its own. In fact, David, when he's looking ahead, he actually goes, at one point, just in verse 10, he, goes, he conjures up a word. He says, even if my mother and my father, even if they forsake me. And so what he's trying to do, he's saying, he's saying to, to, to the readers, he's saying to you and I, followers of God, he says, you can have a way of dealing with anxiety and fear that assumes that the worst thing may happen and can happen, that your mother and father might abandon you, that an army might come up against you. And David, in a sense, says, you know, go ahead. It doesn't matter. Go ahead, bring it on. He says, here's why. Here's the strategy. In verse 3, he essentially says, look, I have so much freedom from fear and anxiety. I have enough left over that if an army should come up, I'd be okay. If mom and dad bail on me, I'm going to be all right. And in verse 4, here's the secret. He starts verse 4 by saying, one thing, stop. There's just this one thing. And so David gives you his one thing. I don't know what yours is. I know mine. I'm going to share it with you because I'm going to look bad. But uh, David's going, let me share with you my one thing. 
says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David says, this is the one thing, this is my one thing. It's three verbs. I, I want to dwell and gaze and seek. One thing I ask of the Lord, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, when David was writing this, as many of you know, if you know the, the scriptures, uh, the Lord contained his presence to the temple in Israel. And so, was David saying, oh, here's what I want to do. I want to go live in the temple? You might go, okay, well, maybe that's the answer. I'm just going to kind of live here at Mendham. You know, they've done a nice job. There's nice furniture out there. I'll just move in here. Things will be good. But the truth is, if you know, if you know um, uh, some of the, 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 the um, laws of the day, he, he wouldn't actually have been allowed to dwell in that temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God. He wasn't asking for that. He wasn't asking to dwell in a physical place. What he's actually asking for was to experience the unbroken presence of God because the thing that he was really after was the face of God. A couple verses later, he says, Seek his face. Your face, Lord, I seek the face. I want to gaze on your beauty. I, I want to be in your presence. The temple of God was the place where God's, uh, the Hebrew word, paneum, dwelt, his presence. And what David is saying is, I want to be in your presence. My one thing is I want to be in your presence. I want to be face to face with you. I don't want to know of you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to be known by you. It's my one thing. Tim Keller, when he was writing on this psalm, he says, this is the secret to a fearless life. When David says, my one thing is I want to dwell in your house and gaze on your beauty and seek you in your temple, that's the secret. What he's saying is, my fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joys. There's actually science behind this. I don't have time to go into it, but it's actually not your circumstances that cause anxiety and fear. It's really what you perceive your ability to overcome those circumstances are. But David is saying, my fears are proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joys. If the thing that is my greatest joy is God, I will live without fear. If he's my one thing, if he's the thing I want most, if it's God, I'm safe. Nobody can touch me. Because when he says, I'm safe in your dwelling place, David is not ignorant. He's not saying, well, if, I, if I'm in the tabernacle of God, nobody could come in here. He understands people could come in there with real swords. He understands that there's not going to be like an Indiana Jones moment where all the bad guys are going to get zapped. That's not what he's thinking. What he's saying is, I'm only safe when I'm, not when I'm physically inside the dwelling, of the tabernacle of God. I'm only safe when you're the one that I want most of all because then I'm safe. Then nobody can take that from me. Then I'm fearless. That's interesting. Sometime between 500 and 1,000 years later, Jesus has a friend. And she's experiencing the same level of anxiety in her life. And Jesus teaches her this same one thing strategy. Some of you know Jesus said that he, he didn't have a place to lay his head, and most of the time that was true. But boy, he loved hanging out at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany. Luke tells a story about Jesus and his 12 disciples, 13 men just unexpectedly showing up at Mary and Martha's house. Ladies, imagine 13 guys just knocking on the door and rolling in. 
What's going on in your heart? How would you feel? Luke says there's this woman, Martha. She's mentioned as the owner of the home. We don't know why, if she was a widow or if it's because she was the older sister. But nevertheless, she opens the door and she's excited to see Jesus. Here, here's how he wrote it. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, it's a pretty cool thing to have Jesus at your house. And so like good hosts, when someone comes over, you want to be hospitable, right? So Mary, she's quick, likely quick to take off Jesus' sandals and wash his feet, which would have been totally customary then when you walked into a home. It would have been rude if she didn't do that. And as Mary does that, Martha takes off into the kitchen to get a meal ready. Jesus and his disciples are going to Jerusalem and nothing but the best for Jesus. At least she thinks. And so you can imagine, Jesus begins speaking to Mary who stays face to face, eye to eye, about the recent ministry, about how things are going in the kingdom. And after she finishes washing his feet, she, she probably puts the bowl aside and maybe puts down the cloth. And she sits there at his feet and she's just captivated by his beauty. And all of a sudden, we see Martha stomping out of the kitchen. She's furious. What happened? Well, here's how Luke remembered it. He said, Martha was distracted by all the preparations. Martha was distracted by all the preparations, by all the expectations. She breaks the face-to-face knownness, and she becomes distracted, not by bad things, guys, not by bad things, She wasn't distracted by bad things. But you can hear her thoughts racing through her head about what needed to be done. How is this going to get all done? Oh, my goodness, this place is a mess. I didn't know anybody was coming by. I don't even have any food. How are they, what are they going to think of me? I am such a loser. I wish I had cleaned yesterday. Why didn't I make the bed? Here Jesus shows up. I'm not ready. Off she goes. I have a reputation around town. What if this gets out? What if people hear about the way I keep my house? Remember in this story, I told you a couple weeks ago, that some of the best stories are Jesus when he's in the boat with his disciples. His disciples. And remember the storm rolls in, and the boat, it's a seismos, and the boat's going down, and Jesus is sleeping. And I told you, nobody clings on to Jesus and assumes, well, if I'm with him, I'm just going to snuggle up to him, I'll be all right. Instead, they all try to t- take matters in their own hands. They can't. Eventually, they go to Jesus, and they wake him up. And when they wake Jesus up, they don't say to him, hey, could you help? They don't wake him up and say, do you know anything about sailing? They wake him up and they say, anybody remember what they said to him? Do you even care that we're going to drown? Because that's what fear does. Fear fear does not drive you towards God to hold on and walk with him through it. Fear drives you in the opposite direction and it makes you start to question his character, if he even cares, and it begins to drive wedges and relationships all around you. Back to Martha's story. She came to him and asked, Lord, do you even care? You even care? My sister, she's left me to do this work by myself. Tell her to help me. Fear and anxiety creep in. It casts doubt on who Jesus is, what he was there for. It causes broken relationships with the sister. Everybody's motivations get called into questions. The church father, uh, Augustine, who many of you have heard of, here's what he wrote about one thing. He said, all of sin is disordered love. It's not that we want the wrong things. Martha didn't want anything wrong. 
It's that we want them with the wrong amount and in the wrong order. And as a result, our priorities get whacked out. Well, he didn't say whacked out. That was my adding to it. In fact, uh, Augustine, when he was looking at Psalm 27, here's where anxiety comes from. All of us have these good things in our lives. We love them. We desire them. Good things, good things. Parents are good things. Kids are good things. Romance is good. Sex is good. All of these things are good things. We all have lots of good things in our lives. But Augustine says when something which is finite becomes to us infinite, anxiety creeps in. When good things become the one thing we think we have to have in order to be happy, when the good thing becomes the one thing that we need to gaze upon for our safety, our security, our validation, when we seek those things, when we gaze on their beauty, when we adore them, when we believe we cannot really live joyfully unless we have it, one good things become one things. And when good desires become inordinate desires, disproportionate desires, Augustine says, anxiety is waiting at your door. Why? This is so good. Why? Keller says, because anxiety is like smoke, and you can follow the smoke down to the fire, and the fire is this. Anxiety is always the result of the implosion or the collapse of a false god. I loved him, and he left me. I was really good at this job, and I got fired. When good things become one things, when things that are good to have, it would be good for Martha to have had food for Jesus. When they become the thing you have to have, when they become the central values of your life, that's where anxiety comes from. Because anxiety is always the sign of a collapse of a false god. Now watch this. Watch what Jesus says to Martha. Martha... Martha, the Lord answered, and you have to understand the tenderness with which he says this. This is the, the, kind of the, the, the um, putting, putting it two times in a row in, in Scripture. Doubling is often a way to magnify the intensity of something. Jesus, remember when he came into Jerusalem, uh, he looked over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. Uh, David crying out about his son, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom. And here's Jesus going, Martha, Martha, see, you're worried You're really anxious. You're upset about many things. But few things are needed. And indeed, only one. Just one thing. Mary's chosen what's better. She got it. And it won't be taken away from her. One thing. And it won't be taken away from her. One thing, and nobody can steal it away from her. So what's your one thing? Because remember now, they're not all bad. I mean, is it, is it love? You know, maybe you're single and, you, you know, mom keeps asking, when are you going to find the right one? Church keeps telling you, church is all about the family. Maybe I don't fit here. Maybe you'd give anything. Maybe it's just like, I mean, that's it. Like, I, I have to get married. I have to have, I have to, I have to have someone. I mean, maybe, maybe you're married. Maybe you've put all that on your spouse. Oh, man, he's the one. I mean, it's even in our sayings, right? Oh, she's the one. He's the one. 
I need him. He's going to provide for me. He's going to take care of me. She's the one. I'm not telling you marriage or love are, are bad things. Let me give you an example. You know what I think most of our one things are for many of us in this church? Our kids. You ever want to tick somebody off, say something bad about their kids? Ooh. I have to warn Steve Fisher about dealing with parents all the time. Stevie, careful. I never talk about somebody's kids because the kids are my one thing. And here's what I want to tell you. I know you're spending a lot of money on those private coaches. I understand the hours you're putting in for the SAT prep. I get it all, but if you do everything right, if you do everything right, if you do everything right, what are those kids going to do? Leave. And your one thing is gone. Take it from Pastor John, who sits on his deck lonely at night listening to Kenny Chesney's songs. <laughs> I have sung, sung Don't Blink by Kenny Chesney, uh, eight million, my neighbors think I have a problem. <laughs> uh, just in closing, I want to close with this. Um, Jesus had a couple of quick little sayings about this, this one thing issue. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven it's like a treasure, it's, it's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, when a man found it and understood what he had discovered, he hid it again. Why did he hide it? Because he didn't want anybody to take it, because it was his one thing. And in joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought the field, because he found the one thing. And then he says it again, just in case we miss it. Jesus, right after that, goes, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it because he found his one thing. What's your one thing? If you're struggling with anxiety, there's two courses of action, as I've walked with some folks through this, um, that medical professionals will, will work with you on. The first is they will try to get to the root of, of the anxiety issue uh, as best they can um, through some counseling. Um, they will help you try to control some of the anxiety through, through carefully prescribed medication. And then, then you'll also, also usually work with a, a doctor, um, a psychologist, who will help you work through um, something called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what do I do? How do I unwind this? How do I control it? What do I do when I feel like I'm going to go out of my mind? Like I, the, the, the words, the mind is racing, the things that are being said to me in my head, how do I control it? Well, what, what psycho, psychologists will do, because all truth is God's truth, is they will say, you need to understand that those are lies and you need to start putting some truth into your head. And so I, I think it's just brilliant because Paul wrote this a couple thousand years ago. I'm gonna conclude with this band, you can come up. Uh, to the church at Philippi, Tim started it. Don't, church, don't be anxious, because I told you what it's going to do to you. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, the opposite of anxiety, is peace. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And here's what I would send you home doing. If you were willing to say, I've got to readjust my one thing. I've got to, start, I've got to start wanting God more than I want 
career, corner office, wife, husband, sex, kids. I gotta readjust it. Here's how you would readjust it. You begin to dwell in the house of the Lord. You create space in your life. You look him in the eyes. You get intimate with God. Paul says this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, all of these things speaking of the characteristics of God. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, keep reading it over and over. No, 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 don't keep reading it over and over. Put it into practice. And the God of peace. And the God of peace. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen.